Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Hopefully you are all ready for the holiday season, setting aside some time to rest. It's a great time of year to catch up on any of our podcasts you may have missed over the past year. And it's a great time to find some new ones. I told you two weeks ago about a new podcast that is on our radar. It is called Beauty Plus Justice, a new podcast from Dr. Tamara James Todd, the head of the Environmental Reproductive Justice Lab at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. James Todd and the rest of her team talk about the history and context surrounding beauty injustices, the potential impacts on our health, and they talk to some of the amazing individuals working in this field. You can find that podcast as well as ours on all major podcast platforms, and please subscribe, rate, and review. All right, today's guest is Beaumont Taylor Morton, Director of Environmental Health and Education for the We Act for Environmental Justice organization. Bo talks about growing up an outdoors person, tapping into and listening to community power, and what healthy scientist community organizing partnerships look like. Enjoy. All right, I am super excited to be joined by Beaumont Taylor Morton. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing excellent. And where are you today? Where are you talking to us from? I'm in uh, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, Lenape Lands. Uh, it's uh, 65 or so outside. Beautiful. I'm in far northern Michigan, and it's usually snowing this time of year, and it is 65 here as well. So we both have, we both have some beautiful days, which is which is delightful. So, Bo, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your upbringing, where you're from, and maybe where along the way environmental issues entered your life. Yeah, I'm uh, originally from uh, Seneca, South Carolina near Clemson University for anyone who who's familiar um with uh, with South Carolina but my family is historically from Griffin Georgia um and we both my parents are uh my both of my parents are four days apart in the same year we were born in the same town so they basically as as babies spent a couple of days together but my whole family is from uh from Griffin and um our family history as enslaved folks um, really focuses around hunting and fishing, farming as well. Um, so hunting and fishing was another good way to uh, to put meat on the table and ensure that there was enough to, to feed folks. Um, and it's something that we, my family, uh, immediate family has always done. Um, and, you know, I think, I can't think of a time where I was ever not playing outside or like hunting or fishing or, you know, doing all kinds of stuff, um, living my best outdoor nerd life. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's like the root of, of, you know, how I entered this space. My brother and my father both work in like environmental, you know, environmentally related fields. So my, my father specifically, um, was a black bear biologist in South Carolina. So we grew up with like 
you know, there were baby bears around, snakes and alligators, you know, almost you name it. We were catching geese in the summertime and helping to, to do some of the tracking. So I think that made for a really fun childhood for us both and gave us a lot of opportunities that I think that other young people didn't have. Um, and, you know, it's something we still we still keep up with, uh, keep up with today. So I think that's that's really um you know, how I came into the work. Somehow, way, shape, or form, I ended up in New York City. So, you know, at some point, like, it took a little bit of a, a pivot, but, you know, that's the the root of uh, of uh, my folks and, and what we care about. I should not assume things, but I, I think you are the first uh, guest that uh, I have this in common with, uh, kind of growing up oh, yeah? hunting, hunting and fishing as kind of the root of of being interested in nature and the environment and being outside. Cause I had a very similar upbringing, um, in Michigan. Very cool. Something you do have in common with some past fellows is attending an HBCU. And I've had a really good time talking to other fellows about this and their experience. So I saw you did your undergraduate work at Spelman college. Can you tell me about that? What that experience was like and, and what that meant to you and your development? Yeah. Um, Spelman was the only school that I applied to. I applied early decision. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is it. If, uh, if I don't get in, I'm gonna have to figure it out, but this is my one choice. Um, and yeah, mostly because my, my great uncle, um, went to Morehouse and he was a really important figure in our lives for just like pushing us to learn more. Um, and you know, always calling to check in and, and all of that good stuff. Um, so I ended up uh, attending the sister school Spelman, uh, to Morehouse and it was amazing. I, I like never regret the the choice to, to have gone there. Um, and, you know, I think just really offered a unique opportunity to get to know, um, like black communities, uh, so much better. Um, and I think just really speaks, I always talk about how black communities aren't a monolith, um, and I, I think Spelman really gave me the experience to really experience that and also experience that through the lens of of uh, womanhood as well. I love that all of the classes really look through sort of that um, that scope specifically. Um, and I grew up in a, a hometown that had a lot of like uh, race related issues. So I think I was like really ready for for something different um, and, and, you know. I'm so glad that uh, that opportunity gave me so many, you know, mentors and and friends who I think are are so important to my life. So, you know, wouldn't trade it for the world. You mentioned that black communities are not a monolith. And I'm wondering if there were certain communities, groups, activities within Spelman that you were involved in that that spoke to that or that opened your eyes to new worlds or that were just kind of pivotal in your in your time there. Yeah, I mean, I think that growing up in South Carolina, I mean, you like we really black for us meant that like you didn't really know where you came from and that was sort of it like your history is just localized and i think just meeting so many people from around the world from uh, different parts of africa and from the caribbean communities and i think i'd never really like engaged with other folks in that in that way and i think even around class right of like um experiencing different um black folks who who have different experiences of, of class, um, as well. And I think just, you know, more than anything else that people identify with blackness in so many different ways. And I thought that was really, um, unique, but that there were a lot of, of strands that sort of tied us together. So I think that, um, 
you know, there were a lot of things that felt familiar and felt like home. And then a lot of things that I saw in other people that I was like, oh, like, you know, it's your background is so different from mine. And we look similar. We don't look similar. Um, and we had to take a class called ADW, which is uh, African diaspora in the world. And I don't I I'm sure like other HBCUs have different versions of this, but like everybody has to take it. Um, and I I think it really gave us like the bigger picture of what um, the diaspora looks like rather than like I came from home to this place and I'm just living in my own my own tiny you know scope and view of things. It seems to me that what you just said there is a great uh, model for what college could or should be, which is comfortable. You feel comfortable there, but you're also being challenged and learning and seeing things that aren't comfortable, the kind of that mix of both uh, comfort and, and kind of new ways of thinking and new people. So I'm glad you experienced that. And I don't know if this was this was part of it or not, but I've been asking everybody, what is a defining moment up to this point or event that shaped your identity? And this could be personal, professional, yeah, I think I have I have like two sort of defining moments. I think um, personally, I like remember sort of related to Spellman, um, the moment when I sort of had the light bulb that I was like queer or gay. Um, I lived with uh, some uh, friends in a in a, a dorm that was related to like being a chapel assistant. There were like ten of us who lived in the house, and I remember sitting on the couch and like. It was like my junior year of college. I was sort of trying to like figure stuff out. Um, and I was just sitting on the couch and I was like, oh, like I'm, I'm, I'm gay. Um, <laughs> and I just remember sort of like walking through the house, like talking to some of them and having some of those conversations. And I think they all made it a really soft place to land um, as far as, as um, coming out and, um, I mean, not even just coming out, just like the realization, I think, was was something to, to sort of grapple with. So I think that's a big defining moment, I think, as far as like shaping not only my own queer identity, but realizing how important community is. Um, and the second more professional one is um, I have always been like, you know, a science fair kid. Like, I've always done the science fairs. I've been very competitive <laughs> in them. And I have always wanted to be like, competitive at the regional level and so like by the time I got to seventh grade I was starting to be real like I don't think it's gonna happen like I'm not gonna win anything <laughs> regionally I think this this might be it for me um and I did a project about beaver dams and beaver deterrents so we we um basically like created a little opening in the beaver dam and tried different deterrents because they'll come back and like and build it up so um, that was a little bit different before I had done projects on like fur bears and like different scents um, using like lime and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I won this award at the regional level called the Pulse of the Planet Award. And it's uh, sort of created by NOAA. Um, and that was great because that was like my like real red, you know, green light to to move towards like science. And I went to a convening a couple of weeks ago and I met this this person from um, from Noah and Carrie. And I was telling her like, oh, in, in sixth grade, I got this award called Pulse of the Planet. Um, and it turns out she, like many years before, was the person who created the award um, for like the the like National Science Fair, you know, uh, uh, group. So it was a real full circle moment. But my parents were very happy because they were like, okay, like, this is the end of science fair projects. Like, <laughs> no more. <laughs> you got the regional award called a day, you know. 
Oh, that is so yeah. cool. And I am such <laughs> a big fan of of beavers. I just read a book a few years ago. I don't know if you've seen it. It was by Ben Goldfarb. Oh, gosh, what was the name of it? But it was all about beavers. I'll have to get it to you. And I just fell in love with them because we have a lot of them here uh, in the Upper Peninsula. And they are so cool. And the way they kind of yeah. shape ecosystems is just magical. Yeah, they're like funny to see in the water if they slap their tails. They're kind of scary, like very cool. But like, it's like when you it's like a cool pop culture like beaver. But then when you get up close, you're like, ooh, this is this is intense. <laughs> like you, <laughs> you go do your own thing. Like, I don't want any trouble, you know, but like, yeah, they're they're like very cool the way they can. Uh, they totally can change, completely change environments. And it's funny to be like, yeah, this is caused by like a couple of animals who just like chew and and like you know, place uh, sticks in mud and, and like change the whole course of like ponds and rivers and creeks and all that kind of stuff. Totally. Yeah. I, I started following them because I really like brook trout fishing. And a lot of times these mm. beaver dams will be excellent places for brook trout. So, well, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I'm really glad to hear that you had a support system uh, uh, on your first uh, your first moment. And the second one, I'm glad that your seventh grade self didn't have to be dejected uh, at, the, at the science fair. So I do want to talk about your your role now. Um, I think we've had at least two alum from WEACT. I just talked to Ashley James, who worked there, and then Oganaya Dotson-Newman. I spoke with her not too long ago. So I think listeners are aware your organization just does so much work and is kind of one of the foremost environmental justice orgs. But can you just give a brief overview of WEACT's work, mission, and how you got involved? Yeah, so we act as a uh, nonprofit that works at the local, state, and the federal levels um, around uh, different environmental uh, issues, programs, policies, all that good stuff um, to really make sure that communities, especially communities of color and lower income communities, um, are protected when it comes to environmental injustices and climate injustices. Um, we uh, work around a couple of different areas, so around uh, research and education and environmental health. We do community organizing uh, as well as policy and advocacy. Um, and, uh, you know, we have folks who work in communications and, and all of that good stuff as well to really make sure that we're advancing um, policy and making sure that folks are engaged as far as programs and resources as well. Um, so I think WEACT has been around for 34 or 35 years, um, give or take. Um, and I... I came to WEACT in pursuit of, I was uh, working my my first master's in environmental policy at the new school, um, and one of my uh, professors and mentors, um, Dr. Anna Baptista, was like, hey, I know you're really interested in EJ, you should apply for this internship, and I, you know, was really, you know, looking to get involved in something, so I I started out at WEACT um, and basically never left, (laughs) like seven years ago as an intern. Um, Ogan and I were, uh, were at, um, we act at the same time. We had a, a, a short sort of overlapping. Um, and then I moved to being a fellow. Uh, and by the time I left as a, as a fellow, I was starting out, uh, was looking for a job. I'd finished grad school. Um, and there wasn't sort of a role. So I worked at, we act as a consultant, during, especially during the summer times. And then I taught middle school science, uh, which is by far the toughest job I've ever had. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, at some point I was like, okay, like middle school science is, is good. And like, I don't know if I want to be like living middle school every day, like 
It's a lot. Um, and the hardest thing I've ever had to do is, uh, is leave that job. Um, and, uh, I left, I think in October around October, um, knowing that I wanted to go back to WEACT. And so I ended up being the environmental health manager and then the, the director. So I feel like I've been very fortunate to see WEACT in a lot of different, uh, seasons, been able to see a couple of environmental health directors before me. So I think that's a pretty, a pretty cool and and unique uh, aspect of the work and, and what I do. And you're still using your education chops. I know part of your role is director of environmental education, and you also have a master's in education. So I was wondering, how does We Act use education to activate community power? Yeah, I mean, so when we're thinking about um, how folks get involved in making decisions, when we think about environmental justice really as a whole, right, a, a big part of that is meaningful involvement, um, right, is, is in in combination with the fair treatment piece. Um, and I think the question really is, how can you be meaningful and meaningfully involved if you're not informed about the issues? Um, and I think that's sort of a complex thing because a lot of our members, all of our members really bring their own expertise into the work through their, through their experiences. Um, but I think as far as education, wanting to make sure that people have um, the knowledge that they need to uh, survive and thrive, engage politically um, when it comes to environmental injustices and climate injustices, um, that they they know what to do, they know what's going on, or they, they're able to really work on critically thinking about these issues. Um, and we don't really get that education in school. Um, and, you know, because it's not required, it's sort of like, it ends up on luck, right? Like, how are you supposed to know that you can't tell whether or not you have lead paint in your walls by like, you know, you can't tell by looking at, you know, the paint on your walls, you have to get it tested. If no one tells you like in school, right. If you're not necessarily like studying some of those topics Um, and same around like food injustice and all of these other topics. So we, uh, we had created a program about 20 years ago called the environmental health and justice leadership training. It was the first project I worked on as an intern um, that really focused on adults at first. And then we added a youth component of making sure that um, our community members were informed and engaged to be able to work on different campaigns that we focus on. Um, Our work is really about community and any way that we can support folks and what areas that they might want to sharpen their skills on um, is is really important to to us. And I think we – um, we've also expanded our ed- educational work to really include um, focusing on advocating in the educational realm that uh, climate change and climate justice and the climate health topics are included in K through 12 curriculum. Um, that that's really important, knowing that the challenges that will come for our young people that they are prepared to think critically to, um, you know, engage their elected officials on these these topics is really. It's really key. I mean, I think right before the pandemic, we saw a lot of the the youth strikes and and student strikes around climate injustices really start to pop up around different cities. And I think an extension of that is is making sure that people have information and the knowledge that they need to to combat these these issues, especially um, frontline communities and um, environmental justice communities who are going to be impacted first and worst, um, who, who have already been impacted historically by um, environmental degradation and discrimination and environmental racism. 
When I think of We Act, I often think of just being incredibly member-focused, kind of community-focused and, and member-driven. And you have a large and active membership base. And I, I'm wondering, what are some of the most memorable things you've learned from your members? Or if there's a story about interacting with a member community that changed how you thought about an EJ issue? Yeah. I mean, we we do engage very, very closely with our members. I know we were working on our um, our Healthy Homes campaign it was a very interesting campaign because I, you know, confessed to not having at the time, especially not a lot of uh, experience around uh, public housing. So I was supposed to be running this campaign around uh, public housing and health and public housing. And, um, you know, it was really interesting, I think, to see what people chose as a topic. And the topic that people really wanted to focus on was safety, safety and security. Um, and we, we act don't focus on safety and security as the the full, you know, the full thing that we do. Um, but, you know, this is the the work that they are leading. And so I think it was very interesting to try to make uh, safety and security, the case for safety and security as a health determinant when we think about um, environmental injustices. But I think of uh, a couple of key members, one member I have in mind who came to uh, the meetings and, you know, when you're you're putting programs together, you're like, all right, like this is what I'm getting ready to do had the program and the outline and uh, every time he would just come in and like eviscerate, like, you know, the thing that we had planned and not in like a malicious way. Right. But like, I think just really wanting to make sure that the, the, um, the building of the platform reflected what the people wanted. And I think the real understanding that like, we don't have to organize people, people are already organizing amongst themselves. So, you know, part of that is just, um, you know, meeting people where they, they're at in their own organizing. Um, and it's nice, I think, to see him around at membership meetings. He decided to stay on as a member after we finished that campaign. And, you know, I think it's always a, a great, you know, a great thing to um, to do, especially when you're not necessarily at odds, but um, in some of those deep discussions, you know, making those connections, I think, can really expose you to a, a different way of putting together um putting together programming and, and thinking about the way that you do things. One of the, the my favorite educational things that I got from, edu- you know, from ed pedagogy um, was trying to use students like prior knowledge as a basis of, you know, where you start, like that's a big part of it. And then sort of scaffolding there using, you know, the, the, you know, zone of proximal, proximal development, right? Like where people can best learn, um, and I think that really sort of clicked with me where I was like, all right, like it's, it's a very similar thing of, of, um, you know, you don't have to start from scratch. You can, you can work with members experiences and, you know, sometimes you're not like the, the person to come in and do a thing, right. You're, you're there to support, you're there to uplift folks and, and really create pedestals for them to be able to do their work. But I think that was a, a good Learning, And I think one of the things that, you know, is sort of in the back of your head, but like really came to the front in, in doing that work. So something I keep in mind moving forward when I when I engage with with members and do that work. So on the flip side of working with members, you've worked with a lot of academics uh, during your time at WE Act. Um, can you share some positive or, or maybe some not so positive experience of working with academics? And what do you think makes or breaks these types of collaborations? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think on the not so positive, I think there are a lot of experiences where, um, where we like 
go into doing work as a community partner, but only to like bring people into the work and that's sort of it. Like, hey, I'm reaching out to you as a researcher and I sort of want to want to use, um, you know, your members of the folks that you organize as sort of testers for this research that I'm doing. Um, when research, those collaborations really need to be, be about partnerships, right? How do you create partnerships that are are really meaningful. And I think we do a lot of that work um, successfully with uh, Columbia University and thinking about how we engage with with those folks as um, as partners. I think that we have a lot of really good experiences, um, especially, you know, I think in research, giving the community partner a lot of space to sort of determine what their role will be um, and sort of encouraging that they get in, you know, as, as good as they can. But I think the budgeting piece is also really big, right? Of like, making sure you're paying your community partners accurately for their time. You know, a lot of people think about the numbers and the people, but don't take account into uh, the organizing pieces um, or the, the, uh, the barriers as far as like knowledge, right? Like we have people from all walks of life, life who are WEAC members. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's not the assumption that like they don't know the material. Sometimes they know the material really well, right? Other times they have no clue. Um, what you're talking about. And so those experiences, I think, are just really different depending on who you are and who you're um, working with, but definitely are like a, a case-by-case, um, case-by-case basis of, you know, doing that work. And I think always like reaching out to, uh, to make connections ahead of time is the best thing you can do. I think about, we had the WEAC Gala recently and one academic institution that we, we sort of had like looser relationships with um, and, uh, you know, we'd been working on this grant sort of on and off and, you know, our relationship sort of haven't been upfront, but, um, they sort of came and found me at the gala, which I thought was really nice. And they like came really based off of the relationship that we were building. Um, and I think like stuff like that means a lot to us when you show up to our events, when you show up, um, and, you know, just say, Hey, I'm so excited to work with you. Like, I think that, that, you know, not only is uh, good for like us as staff members, but especially when you come to community events, right? People can see you engaged and wanting to be in the work, not only as a researcher, but you're invested in the community um, and sort of the wider perspective of, of um, you know, human life, right? It's not all about the science, but it's also about the people who are doing the work, who are being impacted, who are on the outskirts of the work. And, you know, they're not just, they're not just numbers, you know? So clearly, I won't ask you to name names, but I am happy to hear that Columbia has been a good partner. Um, and we did not tell Bo to say that. That was <laughs> that was completely on their sponsored own. There, by. that was not a Just <laughs> sponsored by. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, speaking of Columbia, so our founder here at Ages to Change, Dr. Amizoda, did a toxics education event with WEAC during Pride Week. Um, this is an underserved group. I hadn't really thought about this or people aren't working in this space enough. And I was wondering if you could speak to the intersection of environmental issues and the LGBTQIA community and some of your activism in this space. So we have a campaign called the Beauty Inside Out campaign, which really focuses on um, women of color and femme identifying folks of color who use personal care products, makeup, cosmetics, any of those things, um, and really focusing on the, uh, the, chemicals that are in them and what type of exposure they have to um, to folks' bodies, right? Whether that's reproductive harm, whether that's like 
endocrine disruptors, right? There are all these things that are, are you know, put into cosmetics that are harmful. Um, specifically, specifically, when we think about those groups, there's a disproportionate impact, um, especially when we think about what type of products people can afford, when we think about um, the cost of making products that have harmful chemicals, right? There's a, a big gap, um, especially when we look at, um, at women of color and femme-identifying folks of color um, and the, their exposure, right? Um, in doing this work, um, I think it's always just funny. And in, in like, I always tell people, like, working at We Act is great because you can really make the work what you want, like, down the road. So at some point, I believe um, Oganai and Lubna, two uh, of the environmental health directors in the past, really built up this campaign around Beauty Inside Out. Um, and at some point, it sort of uh, it sort of ended up with me. Um, and I think as someone who identifies as like trans non-binary, um, who was assigned female at birth, um, I like I like understand the work. I understand like I think in my own experience of like having had perms, having had relaxers, having to fight with my mom about my hair, and you know having her half drown me in the sink, you know trying to. <laughs> you know, trying to de- detangle my hair. Like I have all those experiences and I think that makes it really valuable uh, part of the work. Um, and I think also just thinking about as someone who's like, who's en- engaging in like uh, hormone therapy, um, that there are a lot of different aspects of this work that like might apply to me and might not apply to me. And I think in the larger scope, right. Thinking about gender, right. Gender, and our perception of gender, I think, has changed so much over the past 10 years, over the past five years, over the past two years, and that there are more folks who are identifying as non-binary, who are sort of uh, changing the, um, the who may be using different products based on gender, right? I, I think I hear from a lot of people, like, folks who identify as women as well, sometimes use men's deodorant because you feel like it holds up stronger. Uh, a lot of times, right, like, you know, I we did a panel with, uh, with uh, drag queens because I really was like, this is a group of, of folks who may or may not identify as, um, as women, but who are using, you know, these cosmetics that we're telling people not to use really heavily. Like, not even just, like, my exposure is I put this on every blue moon, but I am in this makeup, like, six hours every day, right? And and that's a group of folks who may not specifically um, identify with this campaign. Maybe they do, but there are folks who also should know about, about this work. Um, and yeah, so, like, it's um, the work I feel like is shifting um, according to, um, to gender and, um, you know, when we think about the construct of gender uh, and the gender binary, I think it's, it's something that's getting challenged a little more often than not. And I think that's a big, a big part of this work while also understanding that, right. Like that is a piece of the work and that the, there's the large focus on folks who identify as women of color, them identifying folks and, you know, traditionally what we've seen. So, um, yeah, I think definitely something to think about. There are a lot of folks who I think just just also fall through the the cracks when we think about this work, and it's worth it to have a wider lens when we think about personal uh, personal care products, product use in general. Um, and yeah, I think when, as you go on, generations tend to 
to challenge tradition. And, you know, I think that that doesn't, you know, isn't the beauty and hair care product industry, cosmetic industries are not exempt from that as well. I, I wonder if in this, before we switch gears a little bit, um, one last question about We Act, whether it's in this campaign in space or another one, are there any kind of recent victories, things you're working on that people need to know about? I just want to kind of give you some space here if there's anything kind of worth noting about kind of current happenings at We Act. Yeah, so um, we are still running our Beauty Inside Out campaign. We actually just had a great um, DIY session with a lot of young folks in uh, partnership with uh, Columbia's Children's Center around uh, DIY beauty products um, are a large part of our campaign as well as focusing on young folks. Um, and we're, we've been doing surveys for youth and adults um, around what they think about youth and adult women of color and from identifying folks around what they think about uh, personal care, hair care products, what they think about the Eurocentric standards and how they choose products and all that good, that all that good stuff. So our youth uh, surveys are still uh, still ongoing as far as like uh, collection, but the adult survey information uh, is uh, is out, and we'll be really trying to rally around that soon. Um, the other thing I was going to highlight is as far as educational work, we have a couple of EHJLT cohorts that will probably be launching. Uh, at the end of uh, maybe one at the end of this year, but a lot more in, in 2023 for both youth and adults. And so that's uh, an opportunity to learn about a lot of different environmental justice issues and uh, histories behind environmental justice and climate justice that you may not be, you know, getting from school or the Internet and all of that good stuff. And we also have um, a, a climate resiliency and education task force that we co-lead with the National Wildlife Federation. And that uh, is a group of teachers, educators, folks who work in nonprofits, all of that, um, who are uh, really working on making sure that uh, climate change, climate justice, and climate health are included in uh, K through 12 standards at, at, in uh, New York State. Um, and really beyond that, right, like making sure beyond K through 12, thinking about workforce and, and all those other opportunities as, um, you know, between the age range of, you know, being very young up until age, you know, 25, right? Like what are the ways that we can get um, young folks aware of, of these issues at large? So we have a, a very strong core of uh, young folks who are working on these issues uh, with us and, and hope to be launching our, our platform around this work. Um, within the next year. Um, I highly encourage folks, if they're interested, to become a WEAC member. I think it's like $25 um, a year, but um, that we, you know, gives you a lot more access into the work that we do, our working groups, um, insight into our campaigns. And we also have a newsletter. The newsletter is the best way to get uh, really good insight on uh, happenings at, at WEAC, as well as our, our social media. I think we're on Twitter Facebook and Instagram. So those are three, three good areas to, to follow our work. Excellent. We will encourage folks to check that out. And Bo, I'd like to end with some, I have a few more questions and we kind of veer from the professional into the fun or hopefully fun. I wanted to circle back first on the outdoors. So I was going to ask you kind of what you like to do outside, but it sounds like at some point that was hunting and fishing but what now that you're living in Brooklyn, what does kind of nature and the outdoors mean to you now? And if you do get 
to still go hunting and fishing. What does that look like for you? Yeah, we do. My wife and I go down south for our hunting and fishing, um, which is great. We we bought a rifle, invested as a family for, as a rifle. So during the winter season, hunting is a is a big thing for us. Summertime fishing. Um, I do a lot of watercolor painting. I started in February as a stress reliever, and I have not dropped it yet. So oh, that's great. You know, a lot of uh, outdoor painting. That's so cool. So I was thinking about, uh, I actually had a two month sabbatical at the end of the summer, early fall here. And I was talking to my wife, I was taking these pictures, I would take our beagle, our dog out on lakes and rivers. And I kept taking pictures and told her that I want to try to do watercolors this winter. So maybe I'll be emailing you with uh, some beginner tips what I should be doing or not doing. Listen, for sure. I on a, I started on a day that um that uh Russia invaded Ukraine and oh. I was just so stressed out and then it, I was watching Bob Ross on Hulu cuz all of those <laughs> things are on there and I was just like this is the vibe that I need right now because my brain is like exploding and and Bob yes. Ross has you know led the way to uh you know to my uh new artist life. So anything, nice. uh, any tips uh, or ideas, I'm happy to share. Nice. Well, I got the beard. So I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm like a quarter, <laughs> quarter of the way to Ross, the Ross status. Uh, next question is, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Yeah, my grandfather used to, we have all the Southern sayings, you know, so my grandfather used to say, what's for you is for you, which I think is really um, helpful for reminding me, like, mm-hmm. Regardless of what happens, like leave it up to the universe and see, you know, see what, uh, see what comes of it. So I think that's something I care with me. Excellent. Now I have three quick rapid fire questions. You can just answer with a word or a phrase. And the first one, I don't know how you celebrate holidays or if you do, but we all get some time off hopefully. So your number one priority over the holidays is to blank. Binge watch uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat <laughs> for the show. That's an, ex- that's an excellent one. If I could have dinner with one person, it would be... Maybe Audrey Lorne. My favorite season is... Winter. And the last book you read for fun? Um... They're not like fun books, but uh, this book called Man of War, which is about a uh, high school diver transitioning. And another one, um, I can't remember the author's name. It's called God Says No. It's about this um, Southern, this man in Charleston who, you know, he has realized that he's gay, but decides to live a straight life. And then at some point, you know, he sort of throws it all to the wind. So it's about his, his journey, both fiction. Well, Bo, one of the the best parts of this job is getting uh, to meet new people, and I have really enjoyed this, and I appreciate you making time today. Absolutely. Thanks for for having me, and I hope folks that uh, are interested check out We Act and follow our work. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bo. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org and click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast to listen to this and all past episodes. 
This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of our awesome team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Email our team at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter at agentsofchangeinej.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak to Dr. Valerisa Joe Gaddy, a current Agents of Change fellow and environmental scientist focusing on water resources for indigenous people. Have a great week, folks.